Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Greetings, candid reader. In history, knowledge of persons is important, but knowledge of period and place no less so. For no exploit, great or small, is performed without location, nor can any place on earth be accurately defined. Without geography. Yon Blau. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings and welcome. My name is Jan. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and you are listening to episode two of Wittenberg to Westphalia: The Wars of the Reformation. This episode, the geography of Europe. Today's episode will, in fact, be the first part of a several-part episode on the geography of Europe. The purpose of today's episode is to introduce you to Europe, the concept, its general location, and some of its topography. Let's get started with the concept of Europe. We all probably assume we know what Europe is. It's one of the seven continents. I learned about it in school. It's bounded on most sides by ocean and on the east by the Ural Mountains. The problem is there's no real definition of continent. The common assumption is usually that continents somehow relate to tectonic plates. At least this was my assumption for many, many years. Confusion probably stems with the way we're taught about continents. I, for one, learned about continents at around the same time I was taught about tectonic plates, because they make such a great way to illustrate how South America split off from Africa. And it did, but of course the landmass continent that is South America is actually rather different from the tectonic plate that actually split off from Africa. From a scientific standpoint, you'll never see a tectonic plate. It's underground or underwater. A continent is the bit of ground that happens to ride on top of a tectonic plate, and the one bit of ground doesn't necessarily all ride on the same tectonic plate. As far as Europe goes, the continent that we call Europe is actually made up of a bewildering series of microplates, some of which are actively mobile and some of which are not. The Baltica Plate, whose impact with the Kazakh Plate created the Ural Mountains, is actually probably the least dynamic of all the plates, at least along that fault line. That impact happened before the dinosaurs evolved. At this point, most geologists talk about the Baltica Plate being more or less fused to the Kazakh Plate, meaning that there's very little dynamic movement 
going on along that fault line. On the other hand, the plates involved with the collisions that are pushing up the Alps, the Carpathians, and the Pyrenees are very much active. These fault lines are located in the middle of what we would call Europe, meaning the entire concept of Europe as being based on plate tectonics is a farce. So if we can't rely on plate tectonics, what is a continent? What is Europe, then? The concepts, both of them, are actually quite amorphous. Let's take this definition. Continents are understood to be large, continuous, discrete masses of land, ideally separated by expanses of water. This is extremely subjective. A strict interpretation would leave us with as few as four continents, since Europe, Asia, and Africa are connected by land bridges, as is North America and South America. So that would leave us with North-South America, Euro-Asia-Africa, Australia, and Antarctica. A more liberal interpretation, but one that still says that the continents should be mostly isolated from each other, even if there is a small land bridge, still leaves us wondering why Europe is considered a separate continent in the popular imagination. After all, the land border on the east is extremely long. The answers, I'm happy enough to say, have very little to do with geography and an awful lot to do with history. Europe was first named by the ancient Greeks, but they didn't name it as a continent, as they had no such concept. To the Greek mariners sailing in the Aegean, Europe was simply their side of the sea. Even if they knew the land masses eventually met, the knowledge was vague and not all that important to their daily lives. But of course, by the time the concept of a continent was created in the early modern period, there was already a cultural conception that Asia, Africa, and Europe were somehow distinct land masses, based on a rudimentary geography. Specifics were never really clear. In antiquity, for example, the division between Africa and Asia was often made at the Nile rather than at the Red Sea. The other factors that have led to the creation of the concept of Europe have basically built off this historical accident especially given the place of the ancient Greeks within the development of the Western identity. After the Greeks, the next important piece of shared cultural history was the Roman Empire. Though clearly an important historical touchstone and source of European culture, the Roman Empire also included other areas that are not now part of Europe. For example, the Roman Empire was in North Africa, but that is not Europe. Probably the single most important explanatory factor in the creation of Europe is the Carolingian Empire of Charles the Great, or Charlemagne. This is probably not a self-explanatory statement, because the Carolingian Empire essentially only lasted a generation, while Charlemagne, Charles the Great, was king. It's a long time ago, it's dimly remembered, and yet it's probably the single most important factor in the creation of Europe, at least from my point of view. The Carolingian Empire was a Latin Christian empire that embraced almost all the core areas of Europe, and the exceptions were later conquered by people who had once belonged to the Carolingian Empire. But the most important part of the Carolingian Empire was that it didn't just dissolve entirely or succumb to invasion. The way it broke down was essentially that the component political parts of the empire stopped listening to each other. So the various nobles stopped really paying attention to their king, and the papacy stopped cooperating with the empire, but all these institutions still existed. Most of the Middle Ages, in fact, were governed by institutions that were created by the Carolingian Empire one way or the other. 
but for whatever reason stopped cooperating, or stopped cooperating on the scale that they had under Charlemagne. Of course, the most important of these Carolingian institutions to survive the Carolingian Empire was the papacy. Yeah, yeah, I know, it had developed before Charles the Great, but Charlemagne really took it from being something shaky that was being threatened by barbarians to being the core intellectual institution of Europe. And Charles and his successors really pushed it to complete dominance of the intellectual life of Europe. As a result, the papacy was a continent-spanning bureaucracy whose members were educated in a somewhat uniform manner, all looking at the same doctrines and documents. And while the papacy was hardly monolithic, the fact that its core members had differences and yet clung to the same basic core values was very important in creating the sort of diverse and yet unified Europe that we're all very familiar with. There are of course some problems with this conception. First of all, the concept of Europe survived the papacy. But more broadly, there is the issue of whether Latin Christianity is a core feature of Europeanness. Certainly there's a large number of Eastern Orthodox in what we would consider Europe, and of course, there were plenty of people in Europe, even before the Protestant Reformation, who didn't consider themselves Christian, let alone Latin Christian. Suffice it to say that I don't want to get too deeply into this issue, as it's very contentious. But I would say that at different time periods, there have been different definitions of what constitutes European, and this is one of those issues that has changed very remarkably over time. One of the key features of our story is going to be a major shift in this definition. So we've discussed how Europe can't be defined by tectonic plates. We've discussed how it is a cultural creation created by a number of historical factors, most notably the Roman Empire, the Carolingian Empire, and the Papacy, although these are not an exhaustive list of issues. This all kind of makes Europe sound like it has no possible geographic expression. Europe is a cultural space, a state of mind, man. You need to think to get there. Obviously, this definition would sort of go against the point of a podcast episode devoted to the geography of Europe. After all, in our daily lives, we're surrounded by geographical expressions of arbitrary concepts. I, for example, live in a state that is so small that in order to go to Target, I need to go to a different one. The boundaries of the state clearly have no basis in any kind of physical or scientific process. So what other kinds of things can we base our geographic expression of Europe on? The first thing that pops to mind would be a cultural definition. Of course, the immediate problem with this is the difficulty of saying, on this side of the line is culture A, and on this side of the line is culture B. Even when there are physical separations between cultures, things can get rather murky. For example, almost every definition of Europe uses the Mediterranean Sea as a dividing line between Europe and Africa. What about the islands in the Mediterranean? Sicily, Malta, Crete, things like that? These were battlegrounds throughout the Middle Ages. For example, it wasn't until the late Middle Ages that the Muslim populations in Sicily and southern Italy were eliminated. Complicating the matter further, the definitions that we choose carry connotational power that can end up transferring into biases within the story and outside of the story can confer a value judgment that isn't intended. To get at what I mean, I'm going to need to talk about Eastern Europe a little bit more. If you spend much time reading histories of Eastern Europe, you'll come upon a bewildering number of definitions of where the dividing line between Europe and not Europe lives. 
One of my first experiences in this regard was in Robert D. Kaplan's Balkan Ghosts, which is, by the way, an excellent book for anyone looking for a quick introduction into recent Balkan history. Robert Kaplan puts the dividing line at the eastern border of Austria, which I thought was rather far west. Misha Glenny, the author of a work called The Balkans, puts the border between the Balkans and Europe somewhere around the southern border of Hungary. Rebecca West, the author of The Black Lamb and the Grey Falcon, one of the first great commentaries on recent Balkan history, puts the border in the country of Croatia. The point in all these works, be it implicit or explicit, is that the Balkans are not part of Europe. If we move past the issue of the Balkans and turn to other areas of Eastern Europe, we have the author Andrew Wilson, author of The Ukrainians, The Unexpected Nation, putting the boundary of Europe in solidly in Kiev. In other times in history, we might put the border of Europe in the middle of Berlin, say, at the Berlin Wall, or anywhere else along the Iron Curtain. Certainly, in the first iterations of the European Union, then called the European Community, the nations of the communist bloc were not invited to the party. In almost all these definitions, the point is that Europe is being used sort of as a weapon. Europe, in this case, represents civilization, peace, and prosperity, whereas the thing on the other side of the border is not that be it the repression of communism or the chaos of genocidal Balkan carnage. If you're like me, you're a little bit uncomfortable with all this. I'd like to think that as a Western society, we've come a little bit further along from having civilization and excluding people from it. Now, it isn't the role of the historian to comment on current events. After all, the events are still current, still in flux, and it's not possible to really get at what happened quite yet. But I think current events show that these definitions still have power. The ongoing situation in Ukraine provides maybe a more close-to-home example of the continued power of the definition of Europe as opposed to the rest of the world in modern political contexts. Though as a historian, I like to look for underlying economic causes for events, I think it's fair to say that the protesters in Kiev weren't building statues to free trade zones or lack of tariff barriers. At the risk of getting into more controversial territory, I think it's fair to say that the support of the European community for the new Ukrainian regime against the interference of the Russians has not been entirely caused by their concern for the rights of small nations in a dangerous world. This is a very complicated situation, and I'm certainly not suggesting that cultural affinity is the sole cause of the motivations in this situation. However, I would suggest that it is a cause, and probably an important one. These issues are also not new. The time period we're going to be discussing saw the birth and rise to prominence of the polity that we now call Russia. Since its birth, one of the main existential questions facing the Russian polity has related to its relationship with the rest of Europe. This has led to an ongoing existential seesaw between extremes. In many ways, much of Russia's power is based on the fact that it has managed to progressively conquer the vast, empty expanses of the steppes. On the other hand, the power centers of the country continue to cling to the European side of the Ural Mountains, and continue to be 
interested almost despite themselves in European politics. So there's no geological boundaries that can be said to be scientifically accurate in determining Europe because Europe is largely a cultural entity. But using culture alone as a definition of the boundaries is also extremely problematic. As a result, and in absence of anything better, I'm going to take the coward's way and go with the conventional definition. I'm going to define Europe as the peninsula protruding from the Eurasian landmass, defined in the north by the North Sea, but including the British Isles and attendant islands, on the west by the Atlantic, and on the south by the Mediterranean, but including the majority of the Mediterranean islands. On the east, I am going to define the boundary as the Ural Mountains and the Ural River. Now, there is a high likelihood that I have just infuriated quite a number of you. I just spent 15 minutes talking about everything from plate tectonics to the politics of modern Ukraine, and all that I've achieved is going back to the original definition that I rejected in the first place. To you folks, I do apologize, but please, put down the pitchfork and hear me out. I hope that if you've really engaged with this conversation, you've come to know and understand what it is that this definition represents. It's nothing more and nothing less than the area in which we're defining the events to take place, the main focus of action for this story. It's certainly not a hard geological definition, and it's certainly not any kind of representation of area of cultural superiority. It's just our area of focus, a region of loose cultural affinity wherein people of similar values happen to have spent a lot of time killing each other. If that's not quite enough to make you extinguish your torches, then let me assure you that the idea that the concept of the continent was invented during the early modern period, and that the concept of Europe as a whole underwent substantial evolution during the early modern period, will be on the test, and they will come up again later. So now that we've defined the outer limits of the thing that we call Europe, we can start talking about the inner spaces. After all, that's kind of the point of this discussion, defining how the inner spaces of Europe relate to one another so that we have an arena that we understand in which to tell our story. Let's start with a relatively high-level sketch of the topography of the continent. As I've previously mentioned, Europe is made of a relatively large number of microplates, tiny tectonic features that have been jammed together to form the landmass of Europe. This grouping of microplates can be divided roughly into two groups, the relatively flat northern Europe and the relatively mountainous highland portion of southern Europe. The relatively flat northern portion of Europe is actually made up of a relatively small number of relatively large microplates. Southern Europe is made up of a relatively large number of relatively small microplates, which are in the process of being impacted by the plate of Africa. One way you can think of this is as a bunch of pebbles being caught between two cinder blocks. The result has been that the relatively small features in southern Europe have been driven up into massive mountain ranges, while the relatively large features in northern Europe have acted more like an anvil and have been relatively unaffected by the oncoming rush of Africa. As a result, these two broad regions of Europe present real marked contrasts in terms of their geography and topography. While southern Europe is a wild tangle of rough mountain ranges separated by shallow warm seas, northern Europe turns into a gently sloping plain that from these highlands in the south 
slopes gently away north until it gently meets the sea and then just gently keeps going. This north-south contrast is something of an oversimplification. As I've said, there are several microcontinents even in northern Europe, which themselves have topography in between them. But this north-south split will get us far. And in order to get into any more detail, we're going to need to start getting into specifics. Those specifics are unfortunately going to have to wait two weeks till our next episode. I promise this time that it will be two weeks. I am still getting the hang of this, and I ended up recording basically two or three times as much as I needed for this episode. The excess will, of course, be the next episode, so I'm building up a buffer and getting my workflow under control as I move through this process. I thank you for your patience, and I hope you'll bear with me as I get the wheels onto this train. This episode, we've talked about the concept of Europe, tried to define it geographically, and started to talk about the topography and geography of Europe as such. As always, I'd like to thank Not a Surf for the intro and outro music, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope that you tune in in two weeks for our episode beginning a look at the specifics of the geography of Europe. Talk to you next time, and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.